Now, we have 100,000 kilometres of blood vessels in our body. And those blood vessels are generally lined by smooth muscle that is not under our voluntary control. It's under the autonomic nervous system control, you know, sympathetic and parasympathetic, fight and flight, or rest and digest. But when you go into the heat, you naturally vasodilate the periphery of your body. So you naturally um, vasodilate, you know, the muscles and the, the surface skin. You turn pink. You start to breathe more. Um, your heart is working harder because it's going to pump blood through more open channels because you're vasodilated. So it's a great cardiovascular exercise. And in fact, most of the positive research on saunas, the clinical benefits for saunering is around heart disease, people with heart failure, because it's a really great way to exercise the cardiovascular system um, without having to run or, you know, you can lie down and be relaxed and give yourself a cardiovascular workout. So Welcome to the Degrees of Health podcast. We explore the heat, the cold, and the spectrum of health in between. We had a lovely time speaking with Dr. Mark Cohen. Dr. Mark is one of Australia's pioneers of integrative and holistic medicine. He is a registered medical practitioner with degrees in medicine, physiology, and psychology, along with PhDs in Chinese medicine and biomedical engineering. In our conversation, we speak about ancient biohacks, the ancestral wisdom being recently backed up by science, tools that we can implement on a daily basis to feel more alive. He who has health has hope. He who has hope has everything. Here's our conversation with Dr. Mark Cohen. So as far as like ancient biohacks, where where would you start? If someone who had no idea what an ancient biohack was or is, oh, how man. would you first explain that? And then what do you reckon are the most potent ancient biohacks? I mean, so biohacking is a way to you know, get access to your operating system. So to get you know, mastery over your mind and body. So you could call, you know, using herbs to alter you know, mental states, you know, um, is biohacking. So taking, you know, any medicinal herb to alter pain or to go into an altered state of consciousness, I mean, they could be considered biohacks. And, you know, even now biohacking, you know, super nutrients and, um, you know, different herbal products and nootropics and entheogens, you know, for altering mind states, you know, they, they, that's part of the biohacking community. But cavemen ancestors were doing that. Um, you know, and I talk about ancient future medicine, you know, because that's what I'm really excited by now is, is th these things that are really ancient, and I call it ancient future medicine because it's re-evaluating um, and reusing um, ancient practices that were so simple that even cavemen can do them. They were so effective that every great tradition and every master physician would prescribe them. And they're so complex that even, you know, the most advanced modern day science can't fully explain them, yet they're so practical you can do them at home and so simple that you can do them yourselves. So these things we're talking about, which our cavemen ancestors were doing, so they were taking, you know, entheogens, they were taking, you know, um, medicine, you know magic mushrooms and they were taking herbal medicines to, to change pain and, and um, alter physiological functions. So these are essentially biohacks. Mm. You had a whole another layer of, um, you know, in what would I call low tech and no tech hacks. So things like meditation, you know, yoga postures, fasting, you know, anything you can do with your body to consciously gain control or, or of your body or change your physiological state and experience can be considered a biohack. And Love that. now we're just adding modern technology on top of that. Yeah, exactly. And I think they get a bit, uh, they almost become two separate camps. I think large relevant sample size is a key. And if you've got a large sure. relevant sample size of human history, 
and there's a practice well, or an ancient biohack from I mean, ancient history. It's like, well, why would you ignore that? With um, that's right. I mean, hot and cold. I mean, um, using temperature extremes is absolutely a biohack. Um, and well, you, know, you just read ancient, my next question. Yes, yeah, so our ancient ancestors they had access to hot springs and and cold weather, so they were doing that. Um, and you know, I'm I'm really passionate, and I've been learning a lot recently about honey, and how honey actually transformed human consciousness. And that's a, that's a big statement. But if you think about honey as being the most energy dense form in nature, and not only is it you know the highest form of glucose in nature, much more than a piece of fruit. It's also durable, it lasts forever, and it can be used to preserve any other food or medicine. And um, they say, and honey's been around for 130 million years. So it was this symbiotic relationship between angiosperms, you know, flowering plants and bees. And um, so even our you know, pre-mammals were trying to access honey. And you know, they know now even primates will use you know, tools to get into a, a termite colony or to a beehive. And they, they actually say that the first stone tools weren't used to kill and hunt animals they were used to raid beehives because by cutting into a beehive you can get protein and um, fat from the larvae you know the bee bread and you get you know this incredible source of really high glucose which is needed for consciousness because um, our brains are very glucose hungry so having a source of high quality um, sugar sugars in nature actually gave us a survival advantage that helped us helped us become human and that that probably happened before humans ever tamed fire and then once they tamed fire fire could be used to smoke out the bees and it's much easier to smoke out a beehive and cut some you know honeycomb off than it is to try and hunt and kill an animal and eat raw meat so um yeah know, i guess you so save honey, yourself some um, stings as well yeah so honey's been um you know part of human consciousness for a long time and it, as i say it also preserves any other food or any other medicine and it's, it's medicinal in its own right for wounds or um, internal use, but it's also a carrier for other medicines. So, yeah, I'm a big okay. fan of honey, yeah. So ancient biohacks, we have honey. Any specific types of honey or would you just – well, to, to mean, the listener, what, how would you say – firstly, why should they incorporate some sort of honey into their life, I'd say, and what kind of honey sure. can, they, can they go seeking? Because I'm sure it wouldn't just be these sort of – your general supermarket honey, or would it be? Well, no, they actually say about a third of the world's honey is fake. And, and in America, it might be as high as 70% of all the honey is adulterated. It's fake. It's, it's got corn syrup. It's got rice syrup. It's got sugar syrup in it. It's, it's not real honey. So, you know, cheap supermarket honey is probably not even honey. And, and honey is an incredible medicine and a food. The, the most medicinal honey is called Manuka honey, which comes from Australia. Um, and then there are 87 species of leptosperms in Australia, but one species went to New Zealand. And um, New Zealand has done a great job of marketing manuka honey as being um, really highly medicinal, and that's for wound um, care. There's a compound called MGO, methyl glyoxal, that converts from another compound, um, dihydroxyacetone, in the nectar of the leptosperm plant, the manuka bush, that is super antimicrobial, and microbes can't de develop... Um, resistance against it so it's effective against all antibiotic resistant bacteria and that's great for wound care but it's also great for internal use and also it's very high in polyphenols and polyphenols are this whole class of flavonoids and and plant-based um, phytonutrients or phytochemicals that are really good for us and that's what plants um, secrete to live in harsh, harsh conditions and to ward off pests but it's also what's really useful for us but the best honey 
is probably the, the honey from your local beekeeper. And that's because you're getting micro doses of the pollen in your local area. And that's, that's helping prime your body um, against allergens that are in your local environment. And um, I mean, we can go down a rabbit hole here because bees are amazing. Um, um, and, and I've been hanging out with a lot of beekeepers recently and they're really eccentric people, beekeepers, and, and mostly they're older people. So they've got a lot of experience, but they're quite eccentric. And, and the research that's coming out about how bees, in, bees don't have an immune system so that the plants actually give the bees um, these nutrients they need for their own bee health. And the plants and the bees will actually produce chemicals that humans need for our own health. Um, so there's this incredible symbiosis that happens between bees and flowering plants and humans to sustain everybody's health. And um, I mean, I love this whole symbiotic relationships. And there's also that fermentation that happens when you get honey, you can ferment it um, and it turns into mead. Now, mead is just fermented honey, but it's also the origin of the word medicine. So the word medicine and the word mead have the same roots. And the, it's, it's likely that most medicines derive from honey-based products. There's a lot there, and uh, you know we we could go down the down, down the the rabbit hole for a while on honey. Just just zooming out quickly with, um, mm -hmm. I mean, I've done a, I've done an experiment with manuka honey for about forty five days just to see what would happen to my blood work, and yep. my free it boosted my free testosterone I think, by reducing SHGB. So that was like I think yep. I think maybe just because of the insulin or something like this, but it was uh, it, I felt great and um, it was quite a nice experiment. So. Would you say to the lady? Uh, how are you okay, taking it? Just straight? I was taking it uh, into my mouth with uh, on a spoon. Yeah, so just by itself, because because yes. I've been doing something similar. But I've been taking manuka honey with um, kombucha vinegar that's been infused with herbs, uh -huh. and um, and vinegar and honey together are amazing. So that's called an oxymel. An oxymel. So o x y m e l. So oxy okay. means acid, and mel means honey. And, you know, most people know that Hippocrates says, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Well, one of the things he prescribed most was oxymals. And, and both honey and vinegar are foods, but they're also potent medicines in their own right. But when you mix honey and vinegar together, they're also preservatives for any other sort of um, herbal product. And when you mix them together, you get the biting sourness of the vinegar with the sweet, soothing effect of the honey. And... They're synergistic in the antimicrobial effects. And this was um, proved this year um, in a, a study done in the UK where they took manuka honey and they diluted it to the point where it wasn't bactericidal anymore. And then they got vinegar and they used um, a, different vinegars. They used um, pomegranate, date, um, apple cider vinegar, grape vinegar, and just plain white vinegar. And they diluted them but until they weren't um, bactericidal anymore. Then they took two diluted the um, products, the diluted vinegar and the diluted honey, mix them together and they were bactericidal. So there's a synergistic antibacterial, antimicrobial effect between honey and vinegar that happens. And also the taste effect, that the sweet and the sour together is, is fantastic. And I mean, in ancient Persia, there were 1200 different recipes for oxymals. So oxymals, vinegar and honey combinations were you know, the base of a whole range of, you know, a pharmacopoeia of, of medicines because they're preservatives and they activate the other medicines. And I, I, I did a trial. I was wearing a continuous glucose monitor for a couple of weeks and I was seeing if I could spike my blood sugar using the manuka honey with the vinegar 
and and it doesn't spike it. Can you tell the listener why the blood sugar response is for something like honey is less when you pair it with something like apple cider vinegar or sure. A... Well, well, if it's good honey, it will have a less um, blood sugar response. And they've done studies on manuka honey, which has you know, a moderate glycemic index of about fifty five compared to sugar, which has a hundred. And that's because the polyphenols in manuka honey, and, and I was actually talking to some researchers earlier this year at the University of the Sunshine Coast, which are expert honey researchers. And they've found 44 polyphenols in manuka honey that aren't in other honeys. And polyphenols themselves will delay gastric emptying. So they'll keep the, um, the food in your stomach for longer. So you get a slower glucose release. Um, so that, that's a, you know, a, a reduced blood sugar response there. But vinegar itself it's been well known to, to reduce blood sugar. Why should the listener or anyone out there care about keeping their blood sugar level stable? Sure. Well, um, I mean, no one wants to have diabetes and metabolic syndrome, which is like pre-diabetes and metabolic syndrome, they call it the deadly quartet of so high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, um, overweight and blood pressure, cholesterol and sugar, high blood sugar, um, glucose dysregulation. So that there's, you know, that's the long-term effects of high blood sugar. Um, but even if you have short-term effects of high blood sugar, what happens is you go into this roller coaster of you get an excretion of sugar into your system that makes you secrete insulin. And then you get this high sugar, you get this sugar rush, and then you get a drop and you get hypoglycemic. And then you get craving, you need more sugar. So it sets you up for this roller coaster of up and down, and that affects your mood. It affects your gut bacteria and, and bacterial growth in your, in your gut. And your micro, we're really servants to our gut microbes. You know, people think we're masters of our own world, masters of our own minds. You know, our gut microbes really control a lot of what we do and think and how, how we act. Um, and giving them a you know, blast of sugar and then you know, getting that sugar away is not great for them and it's not great for us. So high blood sugars will um, make you hangry. You know, you get this... I need to eat something now. And, you know, you, you get um, mood swings. Um, it affects inflammation in the body. Um, so you know, any, you know, anything that is related to inflammation. And inflammation is sort of biological entropy. You know, it, it's, it's a common um, disorder process that happens in the body. And then there's hormonal dysregulation. There's um, things that are affecting your skin, um, you know, acne, breakouts, hormonal changes. So there's a really, it's really good to keep your blood sugar you know, well-regulated. Um, and, you know, the homeostasis of blood sugar is, is very well-controlled, usually in, in um, mammals and in humans specifically. But we have, you know, developed such high-processed foods. I mean, honey, even though it's, it's the highest natural sugars, it's not just sugar and it's got polyphenols with it and other things, so you don't get this big spike. But we have all these concentrated sugars that we never had in, in the past and we end up in this big roller coaster and over time even if you you stay even if your hba1c your average sugar stays within a controlled um level this is not a great thing to have um you know these these roller coaster of blood sugar response mm. i think if you just adopted the modern world default your blood sugar would be all over the place all the time and well, I most people are, and, and that, uh -huh. that's what translates into metabolic syndrome and diabetes. And it's an estimate like a 30% 30, 30 of, you know, um, in Australia, I think, in America, probably UK as well, maybe more so in India and places that um, have metabolic syndrome, which mm. is, you know, pre-diabetes. It's really, it, yeah, it really is something. I think uh, having these conscious tools like 
um, like the ones you've just spoken about, the sort of ancient biohacks as, as such, there's one of those, only one or two um, that can help uh, massively, massively important. So we've covered honey, covered honey and vinegar. What was the term you said? The When you combine oxymals. an acid, an ox, we've covered oxymals. Oxymals, yeah. Oxymals. And, and people can do this at home. You can get, you know, get, get the best vinegar you can get. You know, you can make vinegar yourself. I mean, you can brew kombucha yourself and just leave it, ignore it for six months, it will turn to vinegar. And then go to your local beekeeper, get some raw honey, mix them together, and like 50-50 mix. And you know it's good honey because it takes a long time to dissolve. Like, you know, if, you, if you've got fake honey, it'll dissolve very quickly in water. If it's good That's honey, like a, there's lots good of good rule of thumb. Mix, yeah, it's a good rule of thumb. So okay. really good honey will, you know, slump, you know, slump to the bottom of, of the liquid. And it takes a good five minutes to, you know, shake it and mix it. But then once it's dissolved, it will stay dissolved. Okay, so... Ancient biohacks, we've covered the honey aspect, we've covered the oxymal aspect, we've covered the uh, the kombucha aspect as well and sort of touched mm -hmm. on sort of insulin sensitivity and resistance. Yeah. With regards to more um, things that can optimize like your blood sugar levels, can we can we dive into cold exposure? Well, as far as the sure. ancient an ancient biohack, what why why oh A, would you add cold exposure to that that list, the preliminary list of ancient biohacks we can use? Uh, absolutely. And if so why? Um, Mind you, mind you, our, our sort of pre-primate relatives and our, you know, um, our you know primordial ancestors. I mean, they didn't have a; they had an excess of cold. I mean, they lived through ice ages, um, so you know, warmth was probably more important for them. But because they had the cold, and 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 she, that's translated into the modern research. Um, you know, I'm a research professor as well as being a doctor, and I've got a, one of my PhD students, Joy Hussain, spent seven years doing her research on saunas. And there's, you know, we've contributed to the literature. We did a clinical trial on saunas. Um, but when you read the literature on saunas, um, most of it comes from Finland because that's sauna is actually the, the only Finnish word in the English language. And, um, you know, in Finland, you know, I think there's like 2 million saunas for 3 million people, um, something of that order. But um, they take it for granted that when you have a sauna, you go out and jump in the snow or jump in the river or the lake. And the cold exposure is just outside their door they take that for granted but when they do the sauna research and publish it they take it for granted so much about the cold that they don't talk about it so when people are thinking about saunas they think about the heat experience but they actually ignore the cold whereas if you talk to someone from finland the cold experience is just as part of part of much part of saunering as the hot experience um, and i think we've lost that so cold is super important and to, to our primate ancestors um that you know the heat and the cold went together and you know there were places where naturally there are hot springs i'm also a big aficionado of hot springs i work with um the peninsula hot spring group i'm their medical director and head of research education and science for there um but yeah so hot and cold together are synergistic so um and they're a way of regulating your blood flow consciously so this is a biohack now we have a hundred thousand kilometers of blood vessels in our body and those blood vessels are generally lined by smooth muscle that is not under our voluntary control. It's under the autonomic nervous system control, you know, sympathetic and parasympathetic, fight and flight, or rest and digest. But when you go into the heat, you naturally vasodilate the periphery of your body. So you naturally um, vasodilate, you know, the muscles and the, the surface skin, you turn pink, you start to breathe more. Um, your heart is working harder because it's gonna pump blood through more open channels because you're vasodilated. So it's a great cardiovascular exercise. And in fact, most of the positive research on saunas, the clinical benefits for saunering is around heart disease, people with heart failure. 
because it's a really great way to exercise the cardiovascular system um, without having to run or, you know, you can lie down and be relaxed and give yourself a cardiovascular workout. So you can control the blood flow to the outside of the body, but then when you go, and, and by doing that, you're picking up waste products. Because normally when you're running or exercising, your muscles are making waste products and your vasodilated, um, but those waste products can hang around your muscles and that's where you get sore after a workout. But then if you can then flush that you know, with the sauna, so you're not, you're not making um, new waste products, but you're flushing those um, blood vessels, then when you go into the cold, that blood gets forced into your um, interior, into the core, which means, you know, you vasoconstrict the, the um, periphery of your body and all that blood is going through your liver and your kidneys, which is then detoxifying all those waste products. So that makes you want to pee. So it's really important to keep drinking, you know, when you do hot and cold, because you, I mean, even just cold water um, and, and being vertical in water will make you want to pee. And that's just because the hydrostatic pressure of water. Because, you know, every 30 centimetres, you know, there's a certain amount of pressure that, that the water exerts on your body, that, that moves more blood into your core. And cold water will move even more blood into your core because you're vasoconstricting your periphery, which means your liver and your kidneys are getting flushed, and that, so you're on a pee. But it's also detoxifying your body. And by using hot and cold you know, intentionally, you can move blood from the outside of the body to the inside of your body and backwards and forwards. And it's like a bicep curl for your vascular system. So you've got these 100,000 kilometers of blood vessels that are having like you know, bicep curls every time you go from one to the other. And that's normally under, it's, that's a biohack because normally that's not under voluntary control, but you can control it by using external um, temperature control, like you know, cold plunge and, and a hot bath, steam room or sauna. This is really, really interesting on sort of the contrast and the endothelial, I guess, workout you get. The um, I was reading the other day that a a paper out of Glasgow University that shows uh, if you can stimulate your mitochondria, your, basically your endothelial um, foundation is based off your mitochondrial function, your mitochondrial levels, essentially. Well, everything. Is. I mean, that's, that's your energy source in your whole body. Yeah. Okay, great. So, so t- tell us more about that. I mean, did, did, is are you familiar well, I mean, with? I guess talking to about cold exposure, most people are really excited about brown fat, and and. Brown fat is a special kind of fat. Usually it's, it's around your big blood vessels, around your core, so around your heart and lungs. Um, and you think of it as like a heater unit around your um, big blood vessels. And the reason why it's brown is because it's full of mitochondria. And, you know, if you look under a microscope, brown fat is just jam-packed with mitochondria. But these mitochondria are thermogenically decoupled, which means um, they burn glucose. But instead of using that for muscle contraction, they just, or whatever other metabolic functions, they just produce heat. And you know, that's really useful if you're really cold. And if you know the winter is coming on, you know, every day is a little bit colder than the next, you start to upregulate your mitochondria. And at mitogenesis, which is the, the process of producing new mitochondria, can happen much, much faster than making new cells. Because you know mitochondria can fluctuate enormously, so you can you can make new mitochondria very quickly, and um, people anyone who's done cold exposure they'll find that they adapt quite quickly, and this is an evolutionary response to winter, because if you think you know a couple of hundred years ago um, you know our ancestors in Europe they didn't have central heating or you know cars and you know air conditioning and, and controlled environments. Um, but as winter would emerge, as each day got a little bit colder, 
their body would adapt. They'd have mitogenesis. They'd have brown fat production and you'd up, upregulate your metabolism so you can tolerate the cold. And um, I've, I've worked with lots of people teaching them about cold exposure. And, um, you know, most people, you know, they can, they can, off the bat, they can do two minutes in an ice bath, you know, with a bit of breathing and a bit of focus. But after a while, you know, they can go longer and longer. And it can be quite surprising even after the third or fourth time. Oh, wow, I can go five minutes, um, you know, three minutes, four minutes. Um, and that's because your body adapts quite quickly to cold. And that, that is an evolutionary adaptation because as winter comes on, you know, each day gets a little bit colder, you upregulate your mitochondria. And that, that mitochondrial response then changes your thermoregulation. Mm. It's a nice example of through the stress you grow and through the stress you adapt a bit. I think the modern world turns off those sort of environmental reasons for you to change. And um, That's I think that hormesis. Can... So hormesis yes. is a, a stress that actually improves your ability to respond. So the next time you don't have as much stress. It's it. So how how much of these ancient biohacks would you say are just examples of hormesis? Oh, I mean, I don't know about honey and herbs, but I'm um, certainly hot and cold is a hormetic response. And um, and you know, I often get asked, you know, at what temperature? How long should I spend in an ice bath? How long should I go in the sauna? You know, at what temperature? Um, you know, what's the what's the protocols? And it's really hard to answer that because everybody's stress response is different. But what you can do is you can actually monitor your own stress response. And the aim is to go to the point of what I call forced mindfulness. And that's the point when your mind and body are both, they're both agreeing that it's, it's too hot or it's too cold and we need to get out. And at that point, it's, it's like the point in the yoga class where you, you're trying to do a stretch. And there's a point where your muscles tell your mind, hey, don't go any further or we're going to hurt. You know, you're going to hurt yourself. And at that point, you stop and you just breathe. And then what you're doing, you're practicing being relaxed under stress in an extreme condition. So whether that's a yoga pose where you're at the edge of your stretch or whether it's in a cold plunge where you're, you know, it's feeling really cold and it's starting to sort of hurt and you feel you've got to get out or you're in a sauna and, you, and your body's saying, hey, you know, we're overheating. So at that point, you just, um, you, you realize, you acknowledge, hey, I'm under severe stress here. It's a physiological stress. I'm going to use this stress and practice being relaxed under stress so it's a great opportunity to relax under stress and then that can translate into the rest of your life where you know stress comes it's out of your control but then you you've actually oh yeah it's a stress i know how to deal with stress and you you've practiced being relaxed during during a stressful period um but just with hot and cold exposure you're it's fully under your control so you can get out any time so you don't panic um and that relaxation um, is amplified when you then practice being relaxed while you're relaxed. So, and a lot of people ignore this. Um, in yoga, it's taken for granted that you know, at the end of the yoga class, you do a shavasana, you do a corpse pose, and you lie down and you spend five or ten minutes just fully relaxing. And that's when the benefits of the yoga class sort of kick in, when you come back into your balance, you come back into full homeostasis. And often you can bliss out and you do a little meditation. But the same is really important for hot and cold exposure. You, know, you go to the extremes of hot and then the extremes of cold, and there's sort of a general protocol that I follow, which is um, you start off with a rinse, then you do hot, cold, rest, and repeat. But it's in the resting phase. So in the hot and cold phase, you're relaxing while you're stressed, but in the rest phase, you're re relaxing while you're relaxed. 
And by doing that, all your stress hormones, your blood pressure, your breathing, your mental activity all really settle down. And there's a sort of um, principle in Eastern philosophy, in martial arts, in juggling and um, even in dancing and um, ballerina, acrobatics and things, that the greatest movement comes from the stillest point. So if you can have a really still mindset, you know, if you can make your mind really still, and if, I mean, in acrobatics and stuff, if you can keep your dunty end, the point just below your navel, your center of gravity really still, that gives you the ability to kick and punch or spin or somersault around that, that axis. But mentally, if you can have really, you know, if you can achieve stillness, then that gives you more resilience and more ability to have more extreme activity because you're coming from a very solid core. And um, that's what you get after you know the relaxation after the hot and cold then you come back into it and that has it should be done in a thermoneutral environment where you're just really comfortable and you can almost fall asleep so that relaxation session is is really powerful and a lot of people ignore it a lot of people go to the gym they'll do a workout they'll have a sauna then they won't relax they'll just then get dressed and drive off and just spending five or ten minutes at the end of their you know contrast bathing session to fully relax it's it's like doing the um, most people wouldn't do a yoga class and just the end of the last pose just leave. You know, that relaxation you know, is really important. And, and I, I really like to stress that for people doing contrast bathing. You know, it's good to go to the extremes and find out how relaxed can I be in this, this position of forced mindfulness for your body and your mind saying, let's get out. But it's also the point of being comfortably uncomfortable. So you want, you want to find that position of comfortably uncomfortable, and then you want to be really comfortably comfortable. How comfortable can you possibly be? Um, and you know, that's the relaxation. I think being comfortable in an environment where you're doing nothing is actually quite uncomfortable for a lot of people where you haven't got a yeah, phone. There's no background music. There's no stimulation. It's just you and your thoughts. I mean, yeah, I think you can le le learn a lot through just a period of silence and not talking well, no I stimulation. Mean, the, the original yoga practice, so um, um, you know, Hatha yoga, you know, asana practice, the practice of you know, physical postures, was really designed to create a comfortable seat so then you could meditate. So that was really to you know, make your body comfortable so you could sit still and then just find mental stillness. And I find in the modern world that, I mean, I find personally, I, I find that more difficult than finding stillness after hot and cold. And, and it's sort of, there are little hacks there because when you go into the cold especially, your brain turns itself off. And that's a survival mechanism because your, your brain, your monkey mind takes about 20 to 25% of all your energy just to keep your brain, you know, we talked about, you know, the brain being very glucose hungry. That's why honey is so great um, in, through evolution. But um, when you're in cold, your brain realizes, hey, you know, I need to conserve my energy. So it turns itself off. Now, that can be a big problem if you're a you know, Navy SEAL, if you're thrown off you know, in a survival situation, you're trying to open flares or you're trying to think about what to do when you're in cold exposure, you don't think very well because your brain turns itself off. But when you're in a, you know, a controlled environment, using the cold to turn your brain off, then after the cold, go to a comfortable place and just don't turn your brain on for a while and keep it off and then just enjoy that bliss of having, you know, what I call it about actively doing nothing. And doing nothing is actually a spiritual practice. And you might think you're doing nothing, but there's always less you can do. You, know, you can breathe less. You can think less. You can drop your heart rate. Um, so, yeah, having that point of you know, actively doing nothing 
um, then gives you a platform to do the most that you want to do in the rest of your life and also coping with the most stress in the rest of your life because you're carrying that center of stillness around with you from which, which is the pivot point from where you act on. Mm, I think that's such a good message. Every, I think people, me, everyone in the modern world forgets that if you want to be productive, you need a good off plan. You need a good recovery plan. You need, you need a time of stillness to actually give it some when you go back to it. And, um, and to include that into their routine. So if you're doing contrast bathing or yoga, whatever it is, have, have, have a period where it's, this is my doing nothing time. Mm. Definitely. I think it's a real, a real powerful tool. Um, Mark, I know you spent some time with Wim Hof. What have you learned most from Wim Hof? Oh, I learned lots from Wim. Um, yeah, well, I, got to tra- I got to hang out with him in, in, when he did the Australian tour and get to, I developed a whole lecture on the science behind the Wim Hof method. Um, I mean, Wim's such a charismatic, um, you know, person that, you know, you're just being around him. It's like, wow, you know, because you know, he plays play songs and he's got this bellowing voice and, you know, he really motivates people. Um, but really I learned from him, you know, is the power of hot and cold, but also the ability for people to tolerate it. Um, you know, we were doing events with, you know, 500 people all doing, you know, two-minute ice bath. We had these, you know, big blow-up ice bars and, you know, we could get, you know, get them through that. And, um and it's quite a, an emotional experience for a lot of people, you know, to, because um, going into cold water, especially, is um, or it re- reproduces the body chemistry and the breathing pattern of trauma and anxiety. Because when, when you go into cold, you naturally hyperventilate. You get <gasps> this natural response, and that's what happens in a panic attack. And when I used to work in emergency departments, and people would come in thinking they're having a heart attack, and they're hyperventilating. And what they've done is they're, they're basically having a panic attack and they're over-breathing and they're just getting rid of all their carbon dioxide. And, um, you know, when you go into the cold, you reproduce that. Um, I mean, with Wim Hof, he, he does a breathing you know, breathing practice where you actually reproduce that as well. So it's double, you know, where you, you do a breathing practice that reproduces this body chemistry and, and, the, and the breathing pattern of anxiety and trauma. So if you've had PTSD or if you've had severe anxiety, and we've all had trauma in our lives that hasn't been fully processed. I mean, that's just part of being human and being alive. So what, but this, what this does, it gives you the opportunity to revisit that trauma in a safe, controlled environment. Because when you're in an ice bath or you, when you're doing a breathing practice, you can get out any time or you can stop at any time. You're in control. And what it allows you to do then is to realise, hey, this is what it feels like to be out of control and then bring yourself under control using your voluntary responses. So you can control your breathing. You can bring it down. And um, I've been training people. Um, we have a whole lot of wellness hosts at the hot springs that do you know, four fire and ice sessions a day. So they take people through the sauna and the, and the ice, ice plunge. And I've been training them. We're actually developing a whole diploma course in Australia, which is a one-year full-time diploma on hydrothermal wellness um, to train people to work in um, and to give people the experience of hot and cold. And it's, it can be very emotional for people. It, you know, it brings up, I mean, even the thought of going to ice, people are petrified um, and they, you know, they, they're quite anxious about it. And then when they can br- you know, breathe their way through it, it, they feel very empowered. It feels like, wow, you know, I've achieved something. I've, I've gained mastery over my mind and body. And that's very empowering to do that. Um, do you think the- so with Wim Hof, you know, doing these big events and, and feeling the power that people can 
attain over their own physiology with very, very simple techniques. I mean, Wim Hof breathing practice, very, very simple. It's, you go to the extremes of one and the extre- you, know, you, you breathe as much as you can, then you breathe as little as you can. You hold your breath. And then you rest at the end. And, and actually, you know, Wim doesn't emphasize this enough, I think, because you know, he is into the you know, you hyperventilate and then you hold your breath and then there are ways you can prolong the breath hold. And I've done other podcasts about that. Um, we can go deep if you want. But, um, but then... You know, at the end of, of same like the hot and cold, when you've done the the hyperventilation, the overbreathing, and then you've done the breath hold, the breath holding also turns your brain off, just like the cold does. Because when you're hypoxic, the, what what the prolonged breath hold after hyperventilation does, it actually is it tricks your body into becoming hypoxic. And when you're hypoxic, your brain says, "I better turn myself off." The monkey mind, because it's using twenty five percent of my oxygen, and keep that oxygen for my heart and lungs and vital organs. So it actually creates this state of not thinking through the body. And then you can use that state. And after you've done you know, the breath hold, you can just stay relaxed and actively do nothing. And to spend five minutes doing that, and, and I was doing that for many years. And um, it's the only practice I know with the breathing practice where you can drop your resting blood, blood rate, um, heart rate by about 10 beats per minute. So I could get my resting heart rate from, you know, the high 40s to low 30, you know, high th- high 30s, um, just by doing this while I'm lying in bed, just by changing my breathing, because, you know, your body's responded f- with this um, deep relaxation at the end of the breath hold. Mark, from, uh, from our conversation so far, what's really become clear to me is, you know, when you think you know something and it, you kind of know it, but then when you you hear some things and they're really emphasized and it brings it home. What's been brought home for me is the way to change the mind is through the body. When you talk about the sort of your, I guess the, the gut is the second. Well, it's one brain. of the ways it's, and, and it's a very handy way because we've all got bodies and we can manipulate them. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's a hack, sure. it's a high hack to change your mind for your body. Exactly. For sure. For sure. I mean, whether it's, you know, as you said, the kombucha changing your gut microbiome or optimizing it for say, or sauna yep. or cold or breath or breath work. So I think it, it, it's a fascinating, um, fascinating reminder. Um, what would you say, just shifting gears a little bit, this is something I've been thinking about for a number of years. Um, it's sort of used to be my, my line of work and natural plants and botanicals and things. If you were to go long, bet on, for say, for lack of a better term, three plants, herbs, botanicals, whatever, and if you were to go short, three, Maybe let's go two. We'll go long two. We'll go short two. I'd love to hear what your what what's overhyped wow. and would you bet against and what is underhyped and you think actually yes I would definitely go long this botanical herb ingredient whatever it is. Two. That's that's tough. Or one um, each. One each. What would you go long? What would you go short? Okay, so long. So long as so when you say long, it's what something you take all the time for the rest of your life. Is that yeah, you something mean? you something you would bet bet on. Think this is going to this is a underutilized herb plant botanical whatever and i'm going yeah. to bet on this thinking it's gonna grow and be worldly renowned because it should be because of the scientific efficacy behind it or sure. ancestral wisdom behind it and then the inverse um, of what do i think is okay so that one i mean i'm a big fan of tulsi you know holy basil mm. and um you know there's these textbooks behind me you know so i wrote these textbooks and they're in their fourth edition and the first edition was 400 pages and went to 800 1200 and 1600 pages in the fourth edition and it was only in the fourth edition we added Tulsi as a herb because Tulsi is not that well known in Western herbal, herbal, herbal medicine. But you go to India and everybody knows Tulsi. Tulsi is 
they call it the incomparable one. You know, Mother Nature's gift to humanity. And if you're a good um, Hindu, you'll have a, a, a Tulsi plant in your house, in a special courtyard that you'll revere and you'll worship as a deity. So Tulsi is, um, and, and when I wrote the chapter on Tulsi for the textbook, and that's co-authored with Leslie Braun, who's now head of Blackmore's Research Institute, which she has been for a long time, um, that um, you know, I got to write this chapter on Tulsi. It ended up being 300 pages, actually, you know, 10,000 words with 300 references just for this one herb. Um, and it, 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 it balances blood sugar. I, we, you know, I talk about Tulsi as being um, all the good features of sugar, caffeine and alcohol without the drawbacks. So it gives you the energy of, of sugar without the highs and lows in blood sugar. So it gives you energy. It, it gives you cognitive function alertness, with, like caffeine, but without the jitters and the come down. And it relaxes you like alcohol without the um, toxifying effects on the liver. In fact, it's detoxifying to the liver. It's also um, a better mouthwash than chlorhexidine, Tulsi tea. So you can just swill it in your mouth and you can swallow it. And it, it aids liver detoxification. It helps balance blood sugar. It's antimicrobial, um, anti-cancer. You know, Tulsi's got so many features going for it. Um, and, I mean, you can just take it as a tea. Um, you can add it to your salads. You can, in, in, I live in Melbourne, Australia. You know, it just grows in the garden here. Um, so that's something, you know, uh, and it, and it's been tried and true. It's been known for you know thousands of years and revered in. And if you think about Ayurvedic medicine, so it's revered in Ayurvedic medicine. But Ayurvedic medicine has probably the the widest selection of herbs out of any other form of medicine, because they use herbs from the rainforest and herbs from the mountains and the Himalayas and herbs from um, the desert regions. And if you think about Indian cooking, the amount of spices available, um, and Ayurvedic medicine and Indian cooking are sort of merged. You know that very very much. A, a homemaker's form of medicine, and they consider Tulsi the incomparable one, the you know the mother of all herbs. So yeah, Tulsi would be. I mean, if I was going to pick one herb, and there's, you know, there's lots of herbs that I love, but um, certainly Tulsi's um, you know, really up there. So yeah, so Tulsi is, is long. Now what, what you said going short. So what, what, yes. by that you mean you know, what's going against. to happen? Sorry, I bet against. against. Yes, maybe you think it's overhyped or it's it's, it's uh, blown out of proportion. Oh wow, I'm in love with so many herbs. I'd hate, hate to hate to belittle. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a lot of um, herbal ingredients that you know they're taking something out of a herb and then hyping that rather than the whole herb. And I think that's I mean that's been the the way of Western medicine, which has been really successful. You know, you you. You know, you get foxglove and you take the digitalis out. And, um, you know, a lot of our Western medicines come from herbs. Um, and now, you know, L-theanine, you see a lot. You know, L-theanine is, a, you know, nootropic. And I mean, it's mm. basically, it's Camellia sinensis. It's green tea. Um, but green tea has all these other great, you know, polyphenols and stuff in it. So, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of just taking the nutrient out of the context and then hyping the nutrient and leaving the herb behind because I think there's so many complex um, synergistic relationships within herbs that we still don't fully understand. Now, there also are anti-nutrients and there are antagonistic relationships between herbs as well. So it's not that everything in a herb is good and it depends on how you've grown that herb and um, how it's been propagated, whether it's been organically cultivated, there's pesticides on it, how you've prepared it very often um, has a difference. But I don't, I don't know that I want to, you know, dump on any one herb and say, oh, no, I mean... You can, you, I don't even know, it's probably different in the UK than in Australia as well, um, which herbs are, are being hyped mm. at the moment. 
And I think there is a marketing ploy, you know, um, you know the latest herbs. Although it's it's fascinating um, in my honey research. Like, so manuka honey is supposed to be the most medicinal honey in the world. You know, it comes natively from Australia. Um, now in India, they have a, a recipe called shaman prash, which is basically Indian health jam. So, it's, and I think the traditional recipe, and it's like a five thousand year old recipe. And this 5,000-year-old recipe had about 58 different herbs. And I think about 20 of them have gone extinct. So modern-day shaman fresh has about 30-something herbs. But it's basically honey, ghee, you know, clarified butter, and a whole range of herbs. And the most um, common herb was amla. So amla is, um, it was considered the highest form of vitamin C in nature until they analysed kakadu plum, which is an Australian, native Australian botanical and is now known as the, the highest form of vitamin C in nature. And I, I think in nature, just we talked about hormesis before, I think plants do the same thing. So when, when plants live in a very harsh environment, they tend to make more um, phytochemicals to make them resilient. They have this hormetic response to the harsh environment. So a lot of Australian herbs, like, like the manuka bush, the manuka bush is like a tea tree that grows in really marginal lands in Australia. Um, the kakadu plum is adapted to the Australian environment, which is you know low um, nutrient and low uh, water environment. So these hardy environments breed really um, hardy herbs with a lot of nutrients in it. So mm. um, I think you're going to see a lot more Australian botanicals on the market, and you know, things like finger lime and strawberry gum and kakadu plum and Davidson plum, um, just because they haven't been promoted that widely, and it's been sort of secret knowledge amongst the Indigenous and the First Nations people in Australia. But I think that's going to you know, start to hit the global market. I mean, most people know South American herbs, you know, acai and yerba mate, and, um, you know, they're, they're quite well known, maca, um, but Australian botanicals probably aren't quite as well known. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be part of that process, hopefully, to, to, to promote these um, quite incredible herbs. It's interesting. I mean, I remember just the whole topic of uh, how all these fringe herbs and botanicals are suddenly become, they're going from, if you will guess, health nerds or whatever you want to call them, probably people like you and me, Mark, and then they're actually trickling down to, to, to everyone else where they're definitely being way more adopted by everyone in the sort of general public. I, I remember I in 2016 the going, to, yeah. um, going to the Sun Theanines factory in Japan. I was just in Japan. I thought, oh, great. Check out this new, uh, I guess, uh, amino acid from green tea plant called L-theanine. Yeah. And at yeah. the time, it was no one had heard of it. It was tiny. There's some fringe papers around it. And I think it went through this process of going overly extrapolated and a bit overly hyped now. Just on Tulsi as well. I took. I used to live in Singapore, and I took Tulsi yeah. for a while, and it felt very dopaminergic. It felt quite, and I mean that in a good way. It felt uh, like it gave me like a sense of drive and more, um, which was uh, which was quite fun. Yeah, I had a PhD student do research on Tulsi, and we showed just even after a, a single cup of Tulsi tea, you get enhanced um, cognitive function, but also, you know, reduced blood pressure. And, yeah, I mean, just like the glass of kombucha, a single glass mm. actually gives you an effect. It's not like you have to take it, you know, regularly for months on end. Um, but, yeah, I agree about the L-theanine. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of green tea because, um, obviously, kombucha and juan are made from green tea. We make our vinegars from green tea because of the high polyphenol content. And it does have L-theanine, but that's just one of these nutrients in it that, that are, are out of maybe hundreds or even thousands possibly yeah yeah i guess i guess the the the, the argument on the other side would be yes but it's not in the right ratios but i guess yeah you're missing all the polyphenols and flavonoids and mm. all those sort of phytonutrients you talk about um 
Mark, the problem with you is there's so much to talk about and, <laughs> and you can never, we're, 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 it's a lovely problem to have because we're never going to cover it in an hour. I mean, there's so many things we haven't covered um, and I'd love to get into. Just another one, just rounding off this ancient, um, these ancient biohacks, we've covered a few. Are there any one or two protocols you just sort of quick fire say that we might, might not have spoken about today, but you'd say would definitely be one to incorporate. I know you've touched on, a, sure. I guess, water filters before. I've, um, been interesting. I mean, that's a whole nother episode. But in terms <laughs> of hacks... Um, in terms of what I mean, our listeners could do, yeah. Well, so I, I've, I've been condensing this information recently, um, you know, to try and make it more accessible. And for some reason, it ends up as poetry. So I've got all these little poems that summarise information. And there's one poem when we're talking about hot and cold, and um, usually I, I'll talk about some of the protocols, but, but there's um, 10 things you can do with your body that will um, convince yourself that you're relaxed and in control. So these are 10 things you can do to go from sympathetic overdrive, so sympathetic activity where you're fight and flight, to, make, um, to convince your body you're in parasympathetic mode, which is rest and digest. And if you think about sympathetic mode, that's when you're, you're ready to run for your life or fight for your life. So your eyes are wide open, your fists are clenched, your tummy's tight, you're breathing through pursed lips and you're, you know, ex, you're really hypervigilant to what's on the outside. Um, and in that, in that sympathetic state, in that stressed state, um, you actually turn your thinking mind off because you don't have time to think. You want to activate instinctively and you turn your immune system off um, because you don't want to waste energy healing when you're actually in the middle of the battle and then when you survive the battle or you run away from the, the tiger or whatever it is and you're safe in your cave that's when you do parasympathetic that's when you rest you eat and sleep and flirt and um, use fine finger movements um, and have relaxed breathing so there are 10 things you can do with your body i call these the 10 hacks to relax so these are great to do in an ice bath when you're stressing out and you want to relax yourself or if you have a, if a dentist or you know, have to public speak. So these are things you can do with your body. That was a bit of a theme we talked about, things you can do with your body to affect your mind. So the 10 hacks relax are super simple. Touch all your fingers, wiggle your toes. Soften your stomach, breathe through your nose. Sigh, smile, swallow, sing. Flutter your eyelid and focus within. So that's super simple um, activities, you know, and I really love stuff that people can do at home and just try it yourself. Um, and there's, an, there's, I mean, I've got lots of little poems like that, and I'm super happy to talk about water, although we'll need another hour. Um, uh, we definitely will need another hour. <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm pleased you mentioned the poems. I really enjoyed reading them, reading them on the website. When's the, when are you writing this book? When's the poetry book? I know you've got this sort of the anthology of um, natural botanicals behind you, but yeah, I've, I've... when's the poetry book coming out? Um, I don't know. I need to pitch it to some publishers. I've got a lot of the poetry oh. is on my website and that's for free for everybody. But um, yeah, any publishers out there, I'd love to pitch it because a lot of these poems are really condensed and then, then they need to be expanded on and broken down and, and explained. Well, they're, they're and, um, brilliant because you have to go through the complex to get to the simple. And if you can simplify these very broad health protocols into a very succinct poem like that, it, you've done the work to get there. It's you don't yeah. just start simple, right? It starts well, it took with the me massive like text behind. Years uni. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Thirty-eight years at university to to be able to write these really simple poems, and um, yeah. And perhaps perhaps one I'm most proud of is a poem um I was writing at the start of the pandemic, and you know Melbourne was the most locked down city in the world, and I'm a medical doctor, so I was seeing patients, um, and I was trying to think of all the like, what are the activities you can do at home 
that don't require any cost or training or equipment that have scientific evidence, peer-reviewed research that shows that they improve immunity and reduce anxiety. So that was my brief that I gave myself. I started writing all these things down. And I came up with 50 activities. I think I came up with that 46. And then I went, I, I sort of, there's four missing. I wanted, to, I wanted to make it 50. And I wrote out 50 activities. And as I put them together, they turned into a poem. So this poem is a poem I call The Whirl of Wellness. And I'll say, it's, it's, this is how do you go from wired and tired to chilled and fulfilled? Or how to go from stressed and depressed to joyfully blessed? So it's, and, and these are all things you can do at home with no cost training or equipment. So it's hold someone's hand, gaze into their eyes, go barefoot in nature, bask in sunrise, choose a dance partner and go find your groove, do Tai Chi or yoga, mindfully move, share a massage, enjoy healing touch, focus on one thing and don't think too much, make time for a hobby. Play chess, fly a kite. Make use of your hands, draw paint, sew or write. Help someone in need, donate to a cause. Play games, meditate, read stuff from bookstores. Turn off your screens and get a good sleep. Declutter, spark joy and love what you keep. Dig around in a garden, pick up a guitar. Slip into a bathtub, sauna or spa. Care for a pet and take up a sport. Go on vacation and make your home a resort. Lie in a hammock, relieve pent-up stress. Relax and do nothing. And then do even less. Laugh out loud, share a joke, give someone a kiss. Say a prayer, chant a mantra and follow your bliss. There you go. I think, uh, I think those are great words to end on. I mean, I don't know if I can stop that. Mark, Dr. Mark Cohen, thank you very much for coming on. I really, really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure, Benjamin. Great to be with you.